Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, and I am back at it with you again. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the 150th episode of Undying Light. That is just so awesome. 150 episodes, and I cannot thank you guys enough for this achievement. Because, see, you guys are the reason we do I do the show every week. You the listener. And because I continue to get listens and feedback from the show, guys, you are the sole reason I am doing this. And I just kind of want to, you know, we talked a little bit last week about some of the the highlights, if you would, of um, listening, you know, like some of the, uh, the stats, the analytical stats that go into the, the show itself and... I was really blown away by by how some of them uh, really kind of, you know, went about its about its way. So, um, we, you know, when Paul and I split, um, we had recorded episode eighty seven, uh, and that aired April fourteenth. That was, and that wasn't even the episode I was on. So the last episode that him and I did was, oh goodness way back here i'm still looking yeah not dead yet march 4th um that was the last episode 81 that paul and i did and then there's a few that he did um in regards to jehovah's witnesses and then um church history and then him and jason did these rooted and grounded ones from uh daily reformation jason from there and then I had done a couple of these attributes. I did the introduction back on March 18th. And then uh, May 1st was when I kicked off myself at episode 88. So I've done 62 episodes by myself. Well, with guests and things like that. But, you know, I've been the showrunner for Undying Light for 62 episodes now. And, but guys, it's been a tremendous run and I am so blessed and so thankful that you have come alongside me for this journey. You know, we had a little bit of uh, some 
shifting around last spring and you know with Paul leaving and doing his own thing and, and me taking on the show by myself uh, I envisioned losing a lot of people but our listens have remained fairly strong and are increasing and so you know because of that guys I am so blessed and so thankful for you to come alongside me on this journey and, and I thought about doing you know getting something big for the 150th, like maybe a round table with a few people who have been on the show previously. Um, but you know, I, I just have been so busy. I could not even think about organizing anything like that quick enough. So stay tuned. We're going to do some fun stuff in the coming months on the show. I've got a series that I'm lining up that should drop mid June or early July, uh, in regards to, some, a particular denomination if you haven't heard yet um we'll get through that and we'll talk about why and what it's all about so that's coming um i've got one guest coming in tonight to record and then i've got somebody else next week but i will not release that information until we're ready to do the show or actually do that series so um Really, that's the big thing, right, is just trying to keep up with the changing pace in the podcasting world. Everybody's doing all these uh, series and they're getting, you know, especially in the Christian podcasting world, they're doing uh, shows that get such deep theological um, topics in that. And I've tried to keep things very simple for the listener. And even in this whole series on eschatology, which is a complex series, I tried to keep it as simple and unbiased as possible for you. Um, and so that's going to be the mission going forward into the next 150 episodes that we do and on into the future is bring theology and make it as simple for you to listen to and understand as possible. Uh, you, you don't get brownie points if you can articulate the most complex theological um, spider webs. So just enjoy the simpleness that we deliver at Undying Light. And, you know, I say it every week, but the show is listener supported. So if you guys want to come alongside us and join us on this mission, this goal, this journey, uh, and be a part of this community that we're building, then you can for as little as a dollar a month. And you will get so much added bonus to this show than just listening to it. And so you can check us out. We're on Patreon. So it's patreon.com forward slash undying light. And you can join for a dollar a month and get all of the added perks and bonuses that you get, all the chats that you want to join, if that, which is completely up to you. Uh, then you can see all the notes that I do uh, for sermons and schoolwork. And we do different polls and things like that. Um, and then obviously the early release of this podcast and anything else that I do, I've done some bonus shows just for Patreons and I do video chats with them. We do the, uh, that is private to them only. And then the biweekly Bible studies that we do during the summer, we're going to scale it back just a little bit so people can enjoy their summers a little bit more. So we're only going to do, um, one a month through June, July and August. But when school kicks up in September, we're gonna go back to the biweekly schedule and, just continue hammering back through finishing off Mark and then going into, I think Galatians uh, and, or we might look at Romans or maybe the letters to the church in Corinth for uh, first Corinthians and second Corinthians. I haven't decided yet. So one of those will pop up as we'll do our Bible study. So a lot happening in the world of undying light and a lot of perks that you would be able to get your hands into by being a Patreon. And again, I'm, 
okay if you don't want to join that and you just want to share the show with your family and friends and church and you know leave us a review that'd be wonderful as well because uh, that's how we grow this platform is by word of mouth there's very little you know i i haven't in my up my sleeve in terms of uh marketing that would allow this show to really explode but it's all primarily word of mouth and we just continue to grow by you know people wearing our merchandise people sharing the show um, i actually had somebody reach out to me yesterday i'll keep this person on the dl even though i shared them in my story uh they were wearing an undying light t-shirt and somebody asked about us you know about the shirt and so this person gave them the rundown of what we do and so i hope that this you know new person becomes a listener and enjoys the content we produce and that's just really how we grow the show so guys I'm so thankful for each and every one of the Patreons because they do a lot of work to, you know, really drive home the overall message of what we're trying to do in this community. And that's share Christ with the world. And, uh, and even if you don't become a Patreon and you just share the show, buy some merch, whatever it takes, you know, I would love to know who you are and thank you personally for that. So, Guys, you have made this show what it is at 150 episodes, and we are just getting started. We have a lot up our sleeve and up our sleeves in terms of future content. So uh, make yourselves comfortable because Undying Light is going to be here for a very long time, producing weekly content for your earbuds. When you go out on the out to drive, you can pl put us on Spotify or iTunes and listen to us, uh, Google Play or whatever. Uh, we're even on Audible. So you can check us out across multiple platforms, and we're always free for you to listen to. Uh, but uh, please, by all means, reach out to me if you've, you know, at any point bought any of our merch or anything like that. I'd love to thank you personally. So, guys, as been the tradition, we are just knee deep, chest deep, waist deep. We're somewhere deep here in the Book of Revelation. We're cracking into Chapter Twelve. And uh, after we wrap up 12 today, we have 10 more chapters to go through. Next week, we're going to do 13. The week after will be 14. And that will wrap up part four. And so we've got uh, parts five, six, and seven to get on after that. So um, three, six, nine, 10, 11 more episodes after today. So we're getting close to the end, but we still have a ways to go a lot left to tackle and a lot of really difficult scripture. And so I'm going to try and take these in bite-sized chunks for you and we will try and hammer them out, hopefully within the hour and get you back on the way. Just going, I don't know what I just heard. I'm going to have to listen to that two or three more times. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, uh, without further ado, let's get into chapter 12 here in the book of Revelation, as we celebrate our 150th episode. Again, thank you so much for listening. Chapter 12, verse 1, this section is titled, The Woman and the Dragon. Verse 1, and, I, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head 
a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out with birth pangs and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them on the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she might bore her child, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule all of the nations with an iron rod, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness was to where a place was prepared by God in which she was be she was to be nourished for 1260 days. All right, so that's just the first half of chapter 12. And then we'll we'll get into the back half with Satan thrown down to earth. So a ton of stuff going on. What in the world is happening here? We've get this passage that again, Revelation likes to do this where We'll be kind of moving along with the theme, and then all of a sudden, just out of left field, comes this really crazy passage that just, on the surface, does not make sense. And if you're reading the book of Revelation as we go through this series, or have read it in the past, I'm sure you've come to this passage, and you're just going, what in the world is happening? And then you go to some commentaries or... uh you know, maybe some other books and you're just kind of like, okay, well, maybe this makes sense or helps me understand it. And there's probably great resources out there that would help us pick apart this. And we're going to try and hopefully give you a good explanation of what is happening with this woman. Now, remember this, the, the, the passage begins here in verse one, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. I mean, okay. So is this legitimately, a woman appearing with the sun as her clothes and the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. That's quite an interesting appearance. So let's get into it. So in reading revelation, we should remember that the chapter divisions were not originally included. We should therefore hear the first half of the book concluding with the vision of God of the opening of God's temple to reveal the Ark of the covenant symbolizing believers' access to God's presence, accompanied by lightning, thunder, and hail. As the book was being read out loud to its first recipients, there would also likely have been a pause, with some of the previous visions still lingering in the air. John continues here with this great sign appearing in heaven, a woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of twelve stars. The previous visions having concluded... Uh, with heaven opening, this vision begins with a depiction of a glorious church. So John is making it clear that this is not an actual woman, but rather a symbol, referring to her as a sign he saw in heaven. Remember, a great sign, not this is what I saw, a woman standing there. This is what she looked like. She had a son as clothing and the moon was under her feet. No, John is saying that this is a sign. And this is why language is extremely important in, in, in this book because various types of literature are used. And so we have to be careful with how we read and interpret the book of Revelation. Uh, because, see, here's the thing. Roman Catholics will often argue that this figure is depicting the Virgin Mary, right? And I would even venture to say that some dispensational 
people will f- uh, try and say that this is Mary because it says, you know, this uh, she's pregnant. This child wants to be devour. This this dragon here wants to devour her uh, son. But when she gives birth, God catches him up to his throne. So a lot of imagery here that can be used to signify that this is potentially Mary being pregnant with Christ. Uh, But the details really don't fit Mary's story, however. And this woman's children include all who keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus, as we will get down here uh, in verse 17. Now, this woman, therefore, is a covenant community of God's faithful people through whom God brought his son, the long-promised Savior, into the world. She includes the Old Testament and the New Testament church, the people of God living before and after Christ's coming. Thus, the glorious woman not only gives birth to the Messiah, but continues having children after his ascension. God spoke of the spiritual Jerusalem as our mother in Galatians 4.26. Likewise, um, Scott's Covenanters spoke with reverence of Mother Kirk, the church as the bride of Christ and the mother in whose nursery God's children are raised. So this passage often has a lot of issues in regards to uh, who this woman is. And it, again, as I said, the, I've seen the dispensationalist argue that this is Mary and she is, you know, clothed with uh, these garments and it's just a depiction of her, you know, coming to give birth to Christ. And then, you know, that son is then caught up as his ascension wouldn't mark. I mean, so they really try to argue that this is, in fact, Jesus being born because then uh, he uh, Satan can't or the dragon for that instance can't uh, devour Jesus because then in Acts chapter one he's ascending up to heaven to be with God and and so it, it's it's hard to try and envision that based upon what we see here so um, we can easily attest for time's sake, that this woman represents God's people, Israel and the church. The saints of all time were clothed with the sun and the moon under our feet, consistent with John's description that he sees this woman in heaven. Uh, These details uh, emphasize the dignity of God's people and the fact that their true home is with God. And these 12 stars are the 12, uh, the number of 12 represents the people of God. And so, this is as simple as we can make it. Um, I mean, this passage could be used and, and broken down to really try to cultivate such a, a very deep and trying to maybe build a philosophical type of answer to it or even try to logically explain it. And I think we're trying to just see, based upon how John has written um, this book thus far, it, it really should be for us to say, okay, what is happening here? Is this something that is being literally, you know, is this a literal event or is this another symbolic event? And again, we, we right off the bat are led with a great sign. And so we can see, okay, so something is happening that would mean that we can symbolically try and understand this. And so this woman 
in this caption, in, in this portion of text here, is going to point us to God's church, both Israel and the church of the Gentiles. So both Israel and the Gentiles. And so in verse 2, she's got these birth pains. She's pregnant, obviously. We've talked about that. This birth uh, represents the coming Savior in the flesh. Um, but this woman is not only the mother of all believers. She has also helped and bear and nurture Christ, her Savior and Lord, as we've already kind of established here. Uh, being the mother of the church, this woman here represents all, and including that, Jesus himself. And so we have this woman here um, giving birth to all of these people, uh, to the church, and to Christ himself. And so you could say that she is Mary, but I think on a greater scale, this has a bigger picture to be painted than just Mary because Mary didn't give birth to the church. Uh, she just gave birth to Christ. And so this woman here is the representation of the church being born. And so we would go with that route. But then we get to verse three here and we get this uh, another sign and we get this great dragon appearing here in the text. Seven heads, seven diadems. Um, this several descriptive details here resemble the depiction of the lamb going all the way back to chapter five or six. Uh, this is one of the numerous places where uh, Satan attempts to pass him out, pass himself off as divine, right? He's the great deceiver. Uh, he's an angel of light disguised as an angel of light. And so we'll get numerous passages here in uh, chapter 13 and 17, where he will continue to do this, uh, trying to show himself as being something other than what he actually is. So we'll move on here. Uh, his tail swept down uh, a third of the stars in heaven as chapter four state or verse four states here. Uh, Luther actually colorfully describes the abuse and false understandings of this medieval mass as the dragon's tail because it swept away so many people into idolatry, uh, which obviously could very well be. But I think it goes a little bit beyond that now that we have another 500 years of history. But, you know, this is essentially still happening, I think, in the church today. Because if we're talking that um, the depiction of the woman being the church and Satan being the deceiver that comes to try and devour the church, uh, his tail can still be swiping away. And I don't know if we've quite reached that one-third yet, but most likely uh, a lot of these false churches and, uh, you know, especially these big box churches that are out there that preach this word of faith and the the prosperity and all this other jazz that's going on, anything to get people in the doors. Um, then you got the Roman Catholic church, which, uh, idly worship many other things other than Christ himself. Um, Satan is, has definitely, you know, swept them down. Uh, these stars, you know, cast them down to earth. Stars often represent angelic figures. On that understanding, this depiction is likely Satan and his host that originally fell from heaven when they first rebelled against God. And then Satan sees it as an opportunity here to devour uh, Jesus when he becomes flesh and came into this world. So Satan tries to take every opportunity he can to thwart God's plan of salvation. Obviously, we can look back at Matthew 4 and we can see how uh Satan tempts Jesus in the desert uh, after 40 days. And, you know, I think it was Mark, if I'm not mistaken, that says that there was continual 
temptation. So it wasn't just the uh, the three that were recorded in scripture, but there were many other temptations as well. So we we have this kind of picture being set up here again as I had said a little bit earlier in the show how it almost feels like a left turn, but really if we would say that um this would be the beginning of another section in the book of Revelation, then it would be easy for us to see exactly how um, how it is John is writing this for us. And if John is concluding his last section, then it would make sense for us to see this as basically the beginning of another uh, part, if you would, in the book of Revelation. Uh, so we get to this child here, and I want to kind of t- touch base on this a little bit. Uh, this third figure uh, introduced in this vision is an all-important savior. Uh, she gives birth to a male child who is to rule over the nations with an iron rod. In the true fulfillment of the ancient myths this, that reflecting this coming, Jesus Christ is prophesied a uh, son who came, as First John 3, 8 puts it, to destroy the works of the devil. In describing Christ, John alludes to Psalm 2. Uh, which says that through the nations, though the nations rage against God's anointed one, God enthrones his son and grants him permission of the nations. You shall break them with an iron rod and dash them into pieces like potter's vessels. Psalm 2, 9 states, God declares, echoing this language, the woman bears a male child who is to rule the nations with an iron rod with a rod of iron. Uh, the nations belong to Christ as the field of his gospel harvest. We either submit adoringly to him as Lord and Savior, or we fall under his rod of judgment. Moreover, this rod protects the church as a shepherd defends his flock against the wild beasts of prey. So when Christ, at his return, strike the nations with which oppress and persecute the church. So, again, we can easily state that this child is the, the coming Christ. And then we see that he is the one who will be uh, the ruler over all the nations. And I think that goes all the way back to our first episode when we made that statement that we could essentially sum up all of Revelation with just these simple words, that Christ is the victor. And we have it here. Christ is the coming ruler, and he will destroy everything that is opposed to him and his and his you know, commandments, everything that is opposed to the holiness of God, everything that is counter Christian, everything that is against him, he will dash down to pieces. So we get this last little bit here, this woman fleeing into uh, the wilderness where she is a place prepared by God uh, in which she is to be nurtured or nursed for 1260 days. Again, so we have the, the, this appearance of numbers, um, again, we can take symbolically, but we've seen in previous studies here and conversations that this 1260 days or 42 months symbolizes a period of trial and tribulation. Uh, this duration depicts the church age, a limited period, uh, which is prescribed by God during which believers suffer affliction. But notice as well that the wilderness is designed by God as a place of safety for the woman. By stepping away from the ungodliness of the world, Christians are preserved from the ravages of sin. And so I think this is what we can kind of understand the church as being as the world continues to rage and, and against God, they continue to just shake their fist and 
do everything they can to oppose God, which uh, we see so evident in um, the heightened cases of abortion. Now we've got, you know, you could be whatever you want, any pronoun you desire. I mean, big time companies are jumping on board with this. I just seen today that Kellogg's is, you know, not producing cereal that is, you know, this LGBTQ, whatever pronoun garbage friendly. And you can on the box write what your pronouns are. All the social media platforms give you an opportunity in your bio to put your pronouns. But boy, you can't put male or female. Nope, you cannot do it. You have to say you're a he. No, I want to put I'm a male because that's what I am. And so as the world continues to crumble upon itself, because these people are literally consuming each other in terms of their hate and their malice for God, they turn upon each other. Christians have this wonderful little paradise that they can escape to, which should be the church. I'm not saying that all churches act in this fashion. In fact, this is part of my Sunday sermon is the community and the importance of right, rightful community, Christ centered community, the rescue station that the church should be. If your church is not emphasizing God and it's not emphasizing Christ and that Christ can be the one who takes your burdens, then you need to flee. You need to find a different church. If that means you have to move, I would suggest probably consider that because you should not be in a place where you cannot be spiritually uh, fed. You have to have the word of God constantly on your mind, in your ear. And look, podcasts are great. Uh, Sermon listening online is great, but they do not take place of real in-person fellowship. They do not. And that is why the community of the church of God is so important for the believer to get invested in. And so if you are not in a church, then I would suggest, highly suggest that you take the opportunity and find one. I've helped quite a few people in the past um, find churches and change churches and and I know some people are in a you know particular area where they just there is nothing for a very big you know landscaping you know of, of area um and I've had people even move across country to get into true biblical preaching churches so I mean I understand that we all find ourselves in unique situations but this is the reality we face that this world is attempting to consume you and it's doing so by social media, by the news, by TV shows that are being produced. I mean, just, you know, I remember just a handful of years ago, you could turn on NBC and you can turn on and watch a show. And there was, there wasn't really much of an agenda stable to it. I mean, they were just comedy and they'd crack jokes at just about anything or, it was, you know, news, which obviously the news has always been fairly biased. Um, but you know, there was shows that would actually be okay to watch in regards to not being just, you know, trying to shove something down your throat. But nowadays you can barely turn on any sort of mainstream channel and not get a show that has an agenda attached to it. They're just, they're everywhere. Every single thing out there is trying to consume you. And it's 
dangerous to the Christian when our entire walk needs to be a devotion to God. And look, you're not going to be able to do that either just for the sheer fact of what life gives you. I mean, I would love to wake up early in the morning before my wife and daughter do go to the gym, come home and spend some time with the Lord in prayer and scripture reading, and then go about my day doing the, the tasks and duties that a, a pastor needs to do and, um, and, and spend time with my family as I'm allotted to do so. But sometimes I just don't have that structure. And so things that are important to me, such as my family, uh, often take, you know, precedence over, you know, maybe reading, uh, some sort of theology book or, you know, f- to, to help better my mind. And those are things that I'm willing to give up in order to spend time with my family. But then doctor's appointments come up or, uh, grocery shopping or errand running, or I need to go do this or th- you know, things just keep coming up for people. And, you know, oh, we got to take kids to soccer practice. Oh, we got Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts tonight. Oh, we got dance recital. And it's one thing after another. And we as humans just get overly consumed with trying to, quote unquote, entertain our kids through all of these activities that we forget to actually share the gospel and teach them about Christ. We don't get them to church where they can actively participate and hear the gospel being proclaimed. We rarely get them into Sunday school that are true biblical Sunday schools or youth groups or confirmation. And then we wonder why our kids are growing up and rebelling against us when they get to college. I mean, we're just setting them up for disaster. We're literally cooking with a recipe for destruction. And then we sit here and scratch our heads going, well, I wonder why my kid just didn't turn out the way I did. I mean, I grew up in the church. I grew up worshiping Jesus and now they're not. And and that happens all over the place. It happens all over the place. The problem is, is that we've become so consumed with, you know, trying to be a part of this world that we've actually forgot that we're not a part of it at all. And so I think we can look at this passage here and really try and cultivate something that you know, should be already going on is that people utilize the church as a rescue station. People utilize this church for the community aspect. And we see this as a haven for Christians. And we know that Satan is trying to devour us. We know that Satan is actively trying to consume Christians. And so uh, I think this little sign here that's happening is John is showing us that this is the birth of the church and that Satan is constantly trying to usurp us in one shape or another. And not just us, but God himself trying to pass himself off as being divine. He's a divine creature here, right? With the the seven heads and the seven diadems, he's trying to appear as being some sort of holiness, which we know for a fact that he's not. Uh, so, again, we can we can probably spend all sorts of time digging into this type of theology that partakes that takes place here in um, the first six verses. But I I don't, I can't see how this is Mary, um, just a single instance of being Mary and Jesus. And that's it. I think that the woman being depicted, obviously, because it's a sign, a, I think she is a symbol of the church of Israel and, uh, and the Gentiles, all of Christianity. And then I can go ahead and say that the son being born is Christ. He is the ruler 
And obviously we see Satan here in this passage trying to, um, to devour him. And he did so at various points throughout Jesus's ministry, even uh, with the death on the cross, Satan, I assumed would think he had victory at that moment, which he didn't. So we get to move on here. Uh, let's read out the rest of chapter 12, these next uh, 10 verses or so, and we will conclude the show with the breakdown of these verses. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who had been called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the devil saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she had been nursed for a time and a for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away in the flood. But the, but the earth came to help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who kept the commandments of God to hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right, so that's the rest of chapter 12. So let's go ahead and we're going to break this really, I think, into two sections here. And we're going to, we're going to first talk about this little war here in heaven happening and Satan being cast down. Uh, but then we get to the woman per, uh, being pursued by this dragon. And that's, that's substantial. And I think that kind of helps us go back to the earlier part of chapter 12 and answer this question, who is this woman? And why does she have offspring? Who are these offspring? And what is really going on here? And so we'll get to that in just a moment. But so Revelation 12 presents this grand history of the church in the form of a vision of a woman, her son, and this great red dragon. This woman stands for the church, though, uh, through which God sent his son, the Savior, into the world. The dragon is the devil who opposes the birth of the child and persecutes the church after Christ has ascended in power verses one through six introduced the player uh, verses one through six introduced the uh, players of this holy war showing how God overcame the devil through the birth and the saving ministry of Christ starting in verse seven this vision continues by showing the devil's ongoing war against believers Satan had suffered a terrible defeat in the in the coming of Christ so that his activities were curtain or curtailed. Nevertheless, he continues to rage with the resources he has left in the spiritual warfare that marks this age between the first and second coming of Christ. So a lot happening. 
right, in this chapter. But I think what John is trying to paint for us in 12 is this uh, picture of the church being set aside um, even before history. I mean, we know that Satan has waged war against God for for a very long time. And we know that with the birth of Christ, that this essentially is marking the end of his ability to have any sort of power. So the theme in this vision, starting here in chapter 12 or 7, is the defeat of the devil because of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. John writes, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And according to the verse, this verse, not only does spiritual warfare take place on earth between Christ and his people and his servants, but there is a spiritual warfare in the spiritual realms of the angels. And I think we often hear that happening, that there's there are angels and demons essentially fighting over the souls of man. But that may be, but then we can also go back to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 and say that God has commanded us, has, has foreknown us since the foundation, before the foundations of the earth. In that, even though we are constantly in a battle of who has power over us, our salvation has already been purchased by the blood of Christ. And, and I find it interesting. I had a conversation with my, um, my professor the other day, we talked about how in the gospel of Mark, the uh, uh, apostles always had this battle waging on inside of them. It was who had power over their ear and one ear it was Satan and the other is Jesus. And that's the same battle that we as believers have today is who is, uh, gaining control over our, minds. Is it Jesus or is it the devil? And so we continuously have this fight going on even today in our, you know, roaring around us, even though we can't see it. So to understand this passage here, uh, we must realize this, that this battle took place during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, uh, cumulating with his ascension in heaven as revelation twelve thirteen reports that after the dragon had been thrown down to earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. This means that the dragon was cast down just before the age of the church. Uh, Jesus' victory on the cross, crowned with his ascension to heaven's throne, defeats Satan and his army, after which there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, from this perspective, the, this battle between Michael and Satan might be thought as some sort of legal contest in a courtroom of heaven. The heavenly voices rejoice that which, with Satan's defeat, he, the one who accuses believers day and night before our God, has lost his court privileges. This fits with the picture of the Old Testament. Job 1.6 tells of a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. As an angelic being, even the fallen Satan had authority to come with other angels into God's courtroom. God asked Satan whether he had encountered my servant Job, a blameless and upright man. Satan responds by accusing Job, saying that the honor that he honored God only because the Lord had been so richly blessing him. And then Satan's ascension led to a terrible suffering, or I'm sorry, Satan's accusation led to the terrible suffering of Job and Job's subsequently testimony of the faith of the Lord. So we can really dig into this. And again, we get some testimonies of, you know, Satan being cast down. And I, if I recall off the top of my head, I think it was in Ezekiel, uh, that we see this, but 
we we get a few of these kind of elements that um really try to answer us when did satan get cast down from heaven and if we try to understand chapter 12 in this sort of perspective of the beginning of the church age then we would see that satan had the ability to come before God, as Job even did, dictates here, Satan had the ability to come before God and talk to God. And, and we even know that Satan couldn't act without permission from God. So Satan has this sort of access to God and he comes here and would, would probably actively come and go from the throne room and would do so until the beginning of the church age. Uh, even though he essentially is a rebellion against God. We don't see any sort of warfare or anything until this point in the book of revelation. And this is again, one of these passages that are incredibly difficult to deal with. And it's just one of those passages that really tries to make us go, (laughs) how in the world does this fit into place? with the rest of scripture. And it really makes us try to say, you know, or it tries, I think what some of these passages do for us as Christians, it tries to make us create some sort of timeline so that we, we can better articulate in our own minds and maybe to others saying, okay, well, in the beginning, God created everything. Um, but before then he had foreknown all of his people. So those who would be chosen onto salvation, you know, this happened before the foundations and then the earth was made and then the fall of man happened and then Satan's cast. I mean, all these things do, 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 do. We try to logically and philosophically come to some sort of explanation to try and answer these riddles or mysteries that scripture presents to us. And I think that would be, I think in some cases that is helpful as we should try and understand how things kind of play out. But I think the, the discrepancy here between Satan and God, um, I think that's just something that we really, we don't really get to answer too, too much from scripture, nor do I think it's anything that we can really uh, try and facilitate some sort of timeline. Because if we were trying to do that, in the book of revelation, then obviously we've had, uh, the seals being broken and then we move on to trumpets blasting. And now we have this war in heaven and then Satan's cast down. So if that's the case, if all of these things happen concurrently or sequentially, what happens first, second or last, uh, and at what point in history do they happen? Do these happen after this seven year tribulation? Do these happen, you know, right at the end of time when God is getting ready to pour out his wrath upon mankind. So he starts breaking these seals and then the wrath pours or are these things happening throughout the history of the church? And we see, as we've noted that the uh, events often have taken place throughout the history of the church. And I don't think this one is any different in terms of how uh, Satan and has been treated. And so I think we get to this point because we're going to go try to dig a little bit into this text here uh, and try to figure out how this kind of plays out for us. Um, so now this, indi- the word now uh, here back in verse seven indicates a new aspect of the vision. What happened after the child was caught up to God and to his throne, Michael and his angels are fighting. Uh, it's similarly uh, depicted back here in Daniel ten thirteen, 13 uh, with the, 
the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. Uh, and then this the uh, little phrase here, the dragon and his angels, Satan and his demonic cohorts, as we have noted uh, earlier in Revelation 12, and then also as uh, Jesus records in Matthew 25 in his the Olivet Discourse. And so verse verse 41 and so we see again how these things are starting to fall into place in terms of um the events that will partake in in the end of times and so jesus's life in matthew 25 he's telling us he gives us these parables these you know these last few parables here uh and then the Judging of the sheep and the goats is the last one. And this is where uh, in verse 41, um, it says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed and, and into eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. And so, um, again, we're just trying to make sense of how these, this text really plays out and can we, properly articulate it is the big question um in terms of this great timeline i mean eschatology and it has a very complex mapping system and and again this all stems down to what your hermeneutic is if you are dispensational then you're going to have a very much different opinion than if you're post-millennialist or even a non-millennialist and so what we're trying to do is just read this text and try to make sense of what is happening. And obviously I've tried to illustrate, you know, if this is what, if you're dispensational, this is where you would lean. But in terms of the setup here, it really feels like this would fall into line with kind of this ongoing battle since the ascension of Christ. Um, we do have this war raging and then Satan's cast down. So, this could have happened well within, you know, a short period of the ascension. And, but at that time, it's, it, there's really, again, no time gap given here. And I, I think it would probably um, be Ill, irresponsible of us to go back into scripture and try to pluck out some sort of understanding or try to say, oh, well, this is what this passage in Revelation means, even though there's no connection to it. So obviously we know here that this ancient servant serpent here, the devil, uh, reminds that Satan first devoured Eve when de while disguised as a serpent, going back to Genesis 3 uh, and even Second uh, Corinthians. Uh, he led them away from God's outward word to spiritualizing and self-pride. Uh, and because of that primeval deception, he is rightly called the deceiver of the whole world. And the deceiver, if you try to help yourself by your own thoughts or counsel, you will only make matters worse and give the devil more space to operate, for he has a serpent's head. If it finds an opening into which it can slip, the whole body will follow without stopping. But prayer can prevent him from, uh, can prevent him and drive him back. Uh, and then this little phrase here, he was thrown, though Michael and his angels help God's cause by waging war against Satan. The real cause of the enemy's defeat is the blood of the lamb, as verse 11 makes it clear. The decisive victory of Christ over Satan was won on the cross. And so, again, to take these verses singly would be 
detrimental to any sort of um, foundation, um, you know, in, in terms of trying to say, well, uh, these two verses here say this, and then r- disregard the rest of um, the passage. And so if we go, if we were to say, well, 7 through 10 say these things, but we skip 11 and 12, we miss a huge contextual piece of information. And that is, and they were conquered him by the blood of the lamb. So Christ's death on the cross conquered Satan. That is the ultimate victory. Michael and his angels can wage war against Satan and his angels until the end of time. The only thing that will ever conquer Satan is the word of Christ, the blood of the lamb. That is what defeats him. And so that is why I'm going to go ahead and take this position boldly, I think, on chapter 12 and say that this is showing us a very interesting sign from the woman being the church uh, over Israel and the Gentiles, Christians, uh, this son being born is Christ, then Satan coming here as the devil trying to devour him, but being ultimately defeated by the blood of Christ. So they're cast down to earth and Satan is enraged and he pursues this woman. Now we don't, uh, we, we just have right this little picture here and they conquered him by the blood of lamb and uh, the, in the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, the devil is coming down to you in great wrath because he knows this time is short. So Satan's not destroyed yet. He's just overthrown, defeated, conquered. It's like uh, losing a battle in a war. You're not, the war's not over. You just lost a significant battle and you probably have lost, you know, a significant amount of troops. Um, But Satan is not destroyed or ultimately defeated yet. He's just lost this battle. Uh, So, I'm going to kind of rewind just a little bit here to verse 10, this accuser. Um, as we talked a little bit about Job 1 and 2, provides this crucial background here. Because uh, there Satan is depicted as a prosecuting attorney in a heavenly court. Uh, Satan means adversary in Hebrew, as in a courtroom accuser. Uh, similarly, in the Greek, the term devil comes from the verb meaning brings ch- uh, charges with hostile intent. So then we have this text here thrown down. Now that Jesus has secured mankind's acquittal through his death and resurrection, Satan is no longer allowed to bring charges against us. Right? Your sins are forgiven. Satan can't go to God and say, hey, look what Susie's doing or look what John has done. No, that's all been vanquished. Satan has no more power in that. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been purchased by the blood of the lamb. So, when, so this is what Luther says here. When I say Satan comes to you and accuses you not only of failing to do anything good, but of transgressing against the law of God, then you must say you are troubling me with memory of my past sins. In addition, you are telling me that I have not done anything good. This does not concern me, for I either trusted in my performance of good works or law or Uh, or my trust uh, because I failed to perform them. In either case, Christ would be of no avail to me. Therefore, whether you base your objections to, uh, to me on my sins or on my good works, I do not care, for I put both of them out 
of sight and depend only on the freedom to which Christ has set me free. So when you are down in the dumps, you're depressed, you're defeated, you're broken because the sins that you've committed are weighing heavy upon you. You can go before Christ and know that those have been wiped clean and Christ has set you free. The other, the other aspect I would say is you are free from the punishment of sin in the eyes of God because Christ has done for you. However, you will not be free from the consequences of that sin. So whatever decision you happen to make, whether it's to commit adultery or to, you know, do drugs or, or, you know, steal or murder somebody for that matter. Um, those have consequences, severe consequences in some. And, but that doesn't mean crazy enough. I know that I know some people will get on me, but that doesn't mean you can't be forgiven. It can't mean that those sins can't be, washed away because guess what? Paul killed people before he became a Christian. Does that mean he went on to kill more people? No, but Paul, I'm sure still sinned. He still talks about his struggle, the thorn in his side. He still talks about the, the issues that he has. None of these are probably minor and, and insignificant sins, but Paul still continues to struggle just as we all do after we have been saved. And so you may have done terrible things in your past before knowing Christ, but those are just the past. Christ has wiped those away. They are free from you. So as we continue on here, we can conclude chapter 12 as Satan continues to go after the church. And this is exactly what he's trying to do. He signals singles people out and accuses them of their sin, trying to drive them away from the church, trying to drive them into isolation. Well, the church isn't going to accept me because I've done X, Y, and Z. When in reality, the church needs to be more than accepting of those who have done these things and all things, all sin. The church has to be welcoming to all of the people because if the church isn't a place for sinners to go to, then it's not a church. That's just as simple as we can make it. If the church isn't a place for people to go to and and hear the word of God proclaimed, then it is not a church. It is functioning in some other fashion. And so we know that Satan is going to continue to pursue people, continue to pursue the church, and to make war on her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God. We hold the testimony of Jesus in our hand, in our mind, in our heart. And guess what? Satan is going to come at you like a roaring lion. He is going to try and destroy you because you are a Christian, because you believe in Jesus Christ. And he's going to do so through every single thing possible. He's going to do it through your family. He's going to do it through your work. He's going to do it through your, you know, through whisperings in your mind and your heart. He's going to come at you at every angle. You could be waking up in a great mood. You can get into your car and drive to work in a great mood, listening to music, and then somebody cuts you off. And then guess what? You're going to get mad and enraged, and then you're, and then somebody else is going to do something that's going to drive you nuts on the way to work. And then a car is going to slam on their brakes, and then a pedestrian is going to walk out in front of you, and you know, and then somebody's going to sit at a green light. These things are going to enrage you and drive you away from the promise of Christ that's given to you. That is in all of these moments of our fury, our rage, are they're all insignificant. 
all of these moments, they're insignificant because Christ has come and he has conquered Satan and his time is short. And so when Christ comes again, that'll be it for Satan and his, those who are still in Christ will be able to enjoy his wonderful presence. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up chapter 12 with that. But just know that Satan is actively out pursuing the church and actively pursuing uh, believers. And we need to be prepared and we need to prepare our believers for this. And that is why community in the church is exceptionally and incredibly important. No other religion has this type of ability for believers to come to and join in fellowship and, and join in together and relish in the, the love that their savior gives them. No other religion has this. And Christians often balk at the, oh, I have to get up on Sunday morning and go to church and enjoy it. This is your freedom. You have the freedom to decide whether you go or not. It's not a law. I mean, I mean, we, we, we understand that Paul calls for, you know, fellowship, but you're not going to lose your salvation if you don't go to church for six months, but you definitely will be spiritually hungry. Christ tells us all the time that he's the bread of life and those who come to him will not hunger. So my urging is to go into, find a great gospel center church, a church that preaches Christ and does so unapologetically. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this interesting episode that we got to blast through chapter 12 here on. Next week, we're going to look at 13 um, as we continue on our walk through the book of Revelation. Um, but we're getting towards the end. And uh, we got a couple of things lined up after this series, which we'll talk about later on. But uh, we got a little bit left to go, and that will conclude this whole long series. And, uh, but guys, thanks 150 episodes. I am tremendously blessed that we still have the, you know, that we're continuously growing. We have the listenership that we do. Um, if you get to this point, I would highly at recommend urge, plead, ask whatever word you want to staple to it. Uh, I would love it if you could share this out with, with everybody on social media and just get the word out that undying light is still here. We are still producing episodes every single week and there's nothing stopping us in this whole escapade so uh ladies and gentlemen that is going to conclude it for me i hope you guys have a wonderful week and i will see you guys next week god bless
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.